And now time to dive into the Word of God. Do you know that sin is messy? Sin is messy. It creates messiness. I think the testimony of Scripture is pretty clear on this point. When we, as created beings, rebel against the design of God, it creates a huge mess on multiple levels. Just think about it. I mean, Genesis 3, sin is introduced into the created order, and the rest of Genesis, all throughout the Old Testament, a lot of mess unfolds. So many things, brothers killing brothers, uh, you name it, it's on the pages of the Old Testament. But honestly, we don't need the testimony of Scripture to know about sin's messiness. We have experienced it in our own lives, right? Everybody in here, because we are sinners, know about the messiness of sin. And sometimes the weight of that messiness, the, the wake of sin is so hard and so so weighty in our life, it's, it's hard to figure out a way out of it. It's hard to figure out a way to, to get back to the place where we're walking in accordance with God and obedience to God. And it's good to have a little help to do that. Uh, sometimes when I think about sin, it reminds me of doing mud outs. Anybody ever done a mud out? Uh, some, some disaster relief. Living in Louisiana and in Houston for a number of years, I've had the opportunity to help a lot of people who have experienced flooding sometimes. In these homes, they've had 10 to 12, 13 feet of water in their home. And you walk into this home and the, the destruction is everywhere. You could smell it. It's so prevalent in there. And it's so overwhelming. The furniture's ruined. All their belongings are ruined. The carpet is soggy. There's mold and, and, and rot on the walls. And you don't even know where to begin. There's so much mess. And honestly, you just have to start abiding by the old adage, you know, how do you eat an elephant? As if you would, but how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. You just got to start somewhere. Got to start what you know to do. Just start there and then... Try to finish up the work. And I think sometimes sin is so overwhelming. The mess of sin is so overwhelming in our lives. It's hard to know how to start. And yet, God has provided us pathways to greater obedience in his word that we can be mindful of, that we can start moving toward one step at a time. This morning... Our text asks us to consider a subject that's pretty messy and that leads a, a large mess in the, in the life of a lot of people. It's the subject of divorce. Now, from the beginning this morning, I want to recognize that the issue of divorce is both sensitive and complicated. It's messy. Can we all agree on that? It's just messy. And I know I'm looking out in the room. We have people today who have been affected by divorce in multiple ways. We have people in our congregation and our membership who have been affected by divorce in a number of ways. And, and my objective this morning is not to bring further condemnation upon you. My objective this morning is to help us from the words of Jesus Christ himself navigate the messy wake of divorce in the hope that we as a people will value marriage more and seek to walk in greater obedience as a testimony to the goodness of God. Matthew chapter 5. 
is where we'll begin, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Not unlike our own time, Jesus is teaching here in a time when there were differing views on divorce, different camps regarding when it was appropriate to get a divorce and when it was not. The more conservative approach to divorce at this time said that God's people could only file for divorce or grant a certificate of divorce when marital infidelity was known to be true. In fact, they would say that if marital infidelity had occurred in in any kind of way, that perhaps divorce was required in that instance because the covenant of marriage had been so grossly transgressed. And then on the other side of the spectrum, there was a more liberal approach that suggested a a certificate of divorce could be given for any number of reasons. In fact, one of the the teachers at this time said that if your wife spoils a dish for you, if she burns your dinner, you have the right to divorce her immediately. That seems a little humorous, right? And yet, if we think about our own culture, there are certainly people in our culture that treat marriage and divorce this lightly, right? Certainly not every marriage is a result of something as insignificant as as burning a dinner, but largely there are a lot of marriages who end for insignificant reasons. I mean, irreconcilable differences covers a number of seemingly small things compared to the devastation that divorce can bring. I saw a a billboard the other day driving down I-20 from a divorce lawyer that said, need more closet space? Get a divorce. I mean, it's tragic, right? I mean, it'd be, so, it'd be funny if it wasn't so tragic. The way that we have diminished marriage and we have, we've elevated or made easier the, the concept of divorce. So Jesus... In two separate contexts in the Gospel of Matthew, we'll start off with Matthew chapter 5 and then move to Matthew chapter 19, deals with this issue specifically for the people of God. How are we to view marriage and how are we to view divorce? Because there are kingdom implications to how we view marriage and divorce. We want to look at these two passages to help us understand Christ's view of marriage and Christ's view of divorce to make sure that we are serving him faithfully as his people and making sure that that marriage is, is functioning as it is designed to within the kingdom of God because marriage does play an important role in the gospel advancement that Christ came to bring about. We need to understand as God's people why God takes marriage so seriously and why divorce is such a big deal, such a big deal that God has said in his word that he hates it. Malachi chapter 2, verse 16. So we'll begin with his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, and then we'll move to his expanded teaching in Matthew chapter 19 as we seek to allow Christ to develop in our minds a kingdom understanding, a kingdom perspective on marriage and divorce. Let's begin with Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Continuing his teaching, it was also said, and notice the, the familiar construct that we've seen now. It has been said, but I say. You've noticed it is said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, 
that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then Jesus later expands on this teaching, Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 12. Let's let's listen to the, the word Jesus speak, the word of God. When Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees, obviously because they're threatened by the crowd size that Jesus is bringing about, they come up to him and they want to test him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his wife and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they're one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, what about Moses? Why then did Moses command one to give her a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, again, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, Jesus, if if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. And he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven. And I challenge you in the history of the world to find a sentence that has the word eunuch mentioned more in it than that sentence. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now, obviously, there's a lot in this passage, in these two passages, that we want to strive to understand about the nature of marriage and divorce. We're largely going to focus on Matthew 19 since it does expand Christ's teaching in Matthew chapter 5. But let me just say from the onset that this is an important topic for all of us to consider. I'm not just speaking to people who are divorced or who have been affected by a divorce. This is true. This is a good thing for all of us to consider and all of us to to strive to make sure that we are honoring the Lord within our lives. Single people, you you should be challenged this morning as you consider marriage, perhaps, about the the importance of marriage and the the weight of marriage, showing the blessing of marriage. But even if you're not planning on getting married, you should feel the weight of marriage for those of your friends who are married so you can pray for them. And you can give them godly counsel when they come to you. Married people, I hope that you feel the weight of the covenant again that you have committed to yourself before the Lord and seek in everything you do to guard your marriage, to protect it because there are eternal implications on the line. And then for those who are divorced, certainly there's a word for you today as you consider not only the effects of Christ's teaching on your life, but also the grace that is available to you today to rest in as his people. The Matthew 19 passage on marriage and divorce begins 
with a question from the Pharisees, as we see in verse 3 again, with a desire to discredit Jesus. They want to catch Jesus in a contradiction or, or put him with odds, at odds with other teachers in order to entrap him and maybe even get him into trouble in the same way that John the Baptist got into trouble earlier in the Gospel of Matthew that led to his death. And so they asked Jesus, Jesus, obviously there's a lot of thought about divorce out there, so, so where do you fall? on the issue of divorce. Can, can someone get divorced for any reason? And in response to their question, Jesus offers really a kind of basic theology of marriage. And he goes all the way back to the creation narrative, all the way back to Genesis chapter two. And here's what he essentially says. God from the beginning designed man to live in relationship. Because God lives in relationship. He's one God in three persons. Incredible, right? One God, three persons. God lives in perfect relationship. And part of us being created in the image of God is that we are designed for relationship. You remember in the the creation narrative, there's so many things that God says is good as he creates them. But there's one specific thing that he says is not good. He creates man, he looks at man, he looks at Adam by himself, and he says there's no suitable helper for him. There's there's no one for him to live in relationship with, and that is not good. Because I've created him to live in relationship. And so we see from the beginning that God creates man, male and female, to live in relationship. And for the most part, the majority of people will live together in a marriage relationship that is part of God's design. A covenant relationship that would go on to form the, the bedrock of a godly society and further God's revelatory and redemptive purposes. Humanity would progress through the family, generation after generation, and the family itself would form the foundation of discipleship and worship for the people of God. Marriage obviously is a key piece of this, as it is meant to picture a a radical commitment of the people of God to God himself. It's it's meant to picture a covenant, the the covenant that, that man and wife have with one another, and the seriousness with which they take that covenant is meant to be a picture of the larger covenant that God has with his people. You see this a lot in God's design on the earth. The the way he's designed horizontal relationships among human beings is meant to teach us something about the relationship that we are to have with God himself, right? I think about my parenting relationship with my kids and and my, my parenting relationship with my parents. My relationship with my dad as my earthly father affects a lot of the way that I think about my heavenly father. And even now, as I'm parenting a a five-year-old and an almost two-year-old, the way that I think about them as my son and my daughter affects the way that I see myself as a son and daughter of a heavenly father. How great is it that God has designed this world to to help us understand things that we could not understand otherwise? He's given us these relationships, earthly relationships, to help us understand our, our heavenly relationship. And certainly marriage has that, that element of design in it. That the, that the way that husband and wife relate to each other is meant to, to teach them about the kind of intimacy that God desires to have with us as his people. And the way that we treat the covenant that we make before God is meant to help us understand the seriousness with which we are to treat the covenant that he has made with us. Jesus wants us to understand that, that marriage 
has significance beyond just earthly significance. There's something supernatural that happens, something eternal that happens when a marriage takes place. It's not just a legal agreement. There's something more taking place. God joins you together in covenant such that the two become one. And that's not just the testimony of the Spice Girls. That's the testimony of Jesus himself. Some of you will get that, some of you will not, but I'm just going to run with it, okay? Jesus quoting the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 24, says in 19.5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Something supernatural happens in a marriage moment among the people of God that is meant to reflect a greater unity that we are to have with God himself. Your union is meant to say something about God's union with his people. There's a significance here to marriage that we need to take seriously. And Jesus says because of the redemptive and eternal significance of marriage, man must not seek to undo what God has done. And honestly, how could we? How could we undo what God has done? He's, he's certainly much stronger than we do. We don't have the privilege or the luxury of standing in the place of God. So we should seek with all of our might to honor the covenant that we have made and the supernatural union that God has made for his glory. Otherwise, some dangerous practices begin to take place, including adultery, as we've seen in our passage today. This is what is appropriate for the kingdom of God. This is what is appropriate for the people of God in the kingdom of God. But there's a follow-up question as they again try to trap Jesus and put him at odds with Moses, the great teacher, the great giver of the law, the the patriarch of their faith in many ways. Verse 7, Jesus, if what you say is true, we're about to get you, then why did Moses command, they say, for a certificate of divorce to be given to wives in certain circumstances? Was Moses wrong? Was the, the great pillar of our faith wrong? Jesus answers them because he knows the word better than they do because he is the word. Moses didn't command you to get a divorce. Go back and read Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 to 4. Yes, there's an allowance in Deuteronomy 24 for a certificate of divorce to be granted. That's actually a really specific context for that certificate of divorce to be granted. But ultimately, it was allowed, Jesus says... Allowed, not commanded, because of man's sinfulness. Look at verse 8 of Matthew 19. He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed, not commanded you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. The intention from the beginning when you get married is to stay married, to honor the covenant that you are making. That's the design because there are other designs attached to it. But because of sinfulness, God did allow divorce in certain circumstances when the covenant that you've made with your spouse has been really radically transgressed. And so Jesus once again offers his authoritative teaching in verse 9. For the people of God, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery because God has not released you from that union. 
And his eyes are still married. Regardless of what is said legally, God says something different. Now I want to be clear here. This is especially true for the people of God. Remember, Jesus is speaking to God's people here. We want to make sure that we have the right context for these words. When you are a Christian, when you are a part of the people of God and you step into a marriage, you've got to take that marriage responsibly. You've got to take that marriage seriously because you understand the spiritual and eternal significance of that union. It's true for all people, yes, but specifically for the people of God. And then the disciples have this really interesting side discussion in verses 10 to 12 when they say to Jesus, well, Jesus, if that's the case, if it's possible to bring the the judgment of God upon you because of how carelessly sometimes we take marriage, it'd just be easier to remain single. And that's when we get into the eunuch stuff. And Jesus says, you're right. It would be easier. In fact, I wish, well, I wish... The kingdom will raise up some people who will remain single so they can devote themselves to kingdom things. And Paul says later, I wish more people would remain as I am because they don't have as much earthly things to worry about. They can focus on heavenly things. But for the vast majority of people, they're going to be called to live in marriage relationships. And that's a good thing. It's a blessing from God that God will use for his glory. So, That's the passage. Jesus talks to us, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, about the topics of marriage and divorce. And he challenges us as his people to have a different heart from marriage, to understand the significance of marriage and understand how devastating it is, not just from an earthly perspective, from a kingdom perspective, when a marriage fails. God's people and their marriages should look different. Certainly our divorce rate should look different. It should be the exception, not the rule, because we don't want to walk away from something that has gospel implications. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I want us to try to to bring together all the teaching that we see in Matthew 5, Matthew 19, in a concise way to to form and express an understanding of Jesus' view of marriage and divorce. And uh, kind of give some, some principles of the kingdom here to make sure that we understand the significance of marriage and the danger of divorce so that we can live accordingly as God's people. So let's look at it and try to develop, through Christ's own words, a kingdom understanding of marriage and divorce. There's four principles I want us to think about from Christ's teaching here that will help us develop a kingdom understanding of marriage and divorce. Number one, principle number one, marriage is a gift from God and part of his creative design. Now, we've already talked about this a little bit as we walked through the passage, but it does bear repeating. Jesus's reference to the creation narrative in verses four and five of Matthew chapter 19 is very significant. When the Pharisees come and question him, Jesus does not appeal to the teaching of man to argue his case for marriage. Rather, he appeals to the design of God. God, from the beginning, designed human beings to be male and female, despite what you may hear in other places. 
designed them? Has not our Father created them, male and female, to live again in relationship? And for the vast majority of males and females throughout the history of the world, they will capitalize or or find ultimate expression of relational living in marriage between a man and a woman. And there's something about that union that testifies the reality of our God. Again, who lives relationally, one God and three persons. There is a union created in that marriage that serves the greater purposes of God, again, from God's design, not only to populate the earth, but to populate the earth with worshipers of God, to disciple, to build, and from the bedrock of our communities. And this commitment in relationship, again, teaches about the gospel, which leads to point number two. Not only is marriage a gift from God and part of his creative design, we recognize from Christ's teaching that that marriage is a covenant that has spiritual dimensions. This is not just a physical agreement. Marriage is not a business transaction. I've heard a lot of people describe it that way. Well, Jerry, it just makes sense for us to get married because I get the tax break. Oh, friends, if you're getting married for a tax break, look out. Certainly there's a financial blessing in marriage. I'm not denying that, but it is not an ultimate reason to get married. There's something more happening. There's a supernatural dynamic in marriage. Your marriage is something created by God, brought about by God, and testified to by God. Certainly there's something spiritually significant about marriage. When we get married, married, We are saying as a people that this marriage is a provision from God. And we are committing to each other, not just out of a love for ourselves, but a love for God himself. We believe that he has orchestrated this moment in his divine sovereignty. And we are further saying that we believe he will hold us together as a testimony to his greatness. To advance the gospel. Paul elaborates the spiritual and redemptive dynamic of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. I'm going to read that for us this morning. Beginning in verse 21, if you want to turn there. Here's what Paul says about marriage, amplifying the the teaching of Jesus. Beginning in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body is himself its Savior. Notice the language there and how the marriage relationship already is painting a picture of the relationship between the church and Jesus. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water in the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we're members of his body. Therefore, notice this quote again, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, 
What mystery? This mystery of the two becoming one flesh in marriage is profound. Profound, Jesus says. And and Paul says, and here's the root of its profundity, of its profoundness. I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Think about what Jesus is saying there, or Paul is saying there. That the union, the supernatural, mysterious union that God has designed in marriage on the other side of Christ, among God's people, is now meant to be a testimony to the union that we enjoy as the people of God to Jesus. Guys, that's significant. Spiritually significant. When, when we view a godly husband loving a godly wife, what we should see is a picture of Jesus' love for the church. And when we see a godly wife responding to that sacrificial love of her godly husband, we should see a picture of our response as the church to Jesus, as a gospel testimony by design. And can you imagine how it bears false witness then when someone who's claiming the redemptive work of Christ in their life fails to do that? We've all seen the devastation, which leads to point number three. Divorce is always the result of sin, and God hates it. Sin is always the source of conflict that leads to divorce. And sin always leaves a devastating wake. Jesus could not be clearer here in Matthew chapter 19 about why divorce was allowed. Not required, allowed. Not designed, allowed. Chapter 19, verse 8. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. This is why God hates divorce and why we should hate it too. In fact, I would say probably anybody in this room who's been a part of a divorce probably hated it and probably still hates it. Why? Because it's it's messy. The sin that brought it about leaves a a devastating wake. And I'm not saying that the sin is equitable always in divorce, right? I mean, there may be a truly offending party and there may be a victim. Obviously, every divorce has a different story attached to it. But all of it involves sin. And all of it brings about brokenness. All of it brings about hurt and bitterness and destruction. All things that God hates. He does not want that for you. And anytime he sees the wake of sin in our lives, he grieves over it. He weeps over it because there's something so much better for us. And guys, we should have the same heart for marriage and divorce that God has. We shouldn't celebrate divorce. Even when it does happen, we should be grieving over it and weeping over it. Because we know the hurt it's caused. And we know what caused it, sin. And the only hope for that in Jesus. And finally, the fourth principle. Divorce is allowed in in certain circumstances. But hear me, it is never required. And this distinction that Jesus makes 
from what the Pharisees says, Pharisees say, and what and what he says is very important for us. Divorce is allowed in certain circumstances, but it's never required. Well, what are the certain circumstances among the people of God wherein divorce would be allowed? Well, Jesus says, except for sexual immorality, you should not get divorced. And that word porneia has a a wide range of meaning dealing with sexual immorality of a, a number of different ways. And there's a lot of debate about how restrictive it is. Certainly it includes adultery, but it's also more than adultery. So there's an, an allowance here when the marriage covenant is transgressed in a sinful sexual way for there to be divorced. But notice it is not required. And it's something I think we really need to talk about for a second. In that moment of hurt, when sin is revealed and divorce is being considered, one thing I always want us to ask ourselves is, is there a moment, is there an opportunity, even in the midst of this hurt, to be a light for the gospel? Here's what I mean by this. When there is sexual immorality and divorce is allowable, is there a better opportunity if there is true repentance on the part of the offending party to express or display the gospel in that moment, I want you to think about how powerful a testimony it would be. And maybe some of you in this room right now are wrestling with whether or not you should get a divorce because biblically there's an allowance here for it. But think about the testimony here. If, if there's an offense, a deep offense that has really hurt you, and there's genuine repentance from your spouse, your husband, or your wife. Wouldn't it be an incredible testimony of the gospel to say, you know what? You've wounded me deeply. You've hurt me deeply. But I'm going to strive to give you forgiveness in the same way that God has forgiven me. Because I've wounded him deeply. And yet he didn't abandon me. He didn't walk out on me. He forgave me. I know this is not going to be easy. I know it's going to be hard. I'm not Jesus, but I'm going to strive to live out the gospel and let you earn back trust for this marriage. Wouldn't that be an incredible display of the gospel? When we think about what God has done for us, when we think about the forgiveness that he has provided for us in Christ, I can't think of a more beautiful picture of the gospel and restoration and that. And friends, I've seen it happen. It is possible. You may think there's a hurt in your heart that, that cannot be healed, but I promise you it is not beyond the healing power of Jesus. But even so, sometimes there's unrepentance. Sometimes the wound is so great and the wake of sin is so deep that, that divorce happens. And I want you to hear me this morning. If that is you, we want to come alongside you and we want to walk with you. We want to encourage you. We want you to, to know that there's healing in the gospel, even for the messiness of divorce. Now, Jerry, what about other allowances in the Bible? Doesn't Paul allow for another version that's kind of, or another reason for divorce that, that Jesus doesn't mention here? Paul does talk about another reason for divorce in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, but he's in a different context. Remember, Jesus is primarily teaching to the people of God, but now Paul begins to deal with another scenario. What happens if somebody's married 
and they're both unbelievers. And then one of them comes to faith in Christ. And the, the spouse is so offended by their conversion to Jesus that they abandon them. What do you do in that scenario? Abandonment because of salvation. Well, Paul says, if it's possible, even after your conversion, to stay with your spouse, do that because the Lord may use it to win your spouse to Jesus. And that's certainly the best thing. But if they reject you, if they abandon you because of your faith, you can be free of that covenant requirement and you can remarry. So there's a second option there in abandonment cases for the sake of someone's conversion to Christianity, moving from a non-believing state to a believing state. Well, Jerry, what about abuse? Shouldn't the Bible say something about abuse? Well, I want to say this morning clearly, we are not advocating for any person to stay in a dangerous or unsafe environment. And we will come alongside you to help you get to safety if you are currently in a situation like that or if you find yourself in a situation like that. There are certainly processes around a moment like that, church discipline that we need to engage in. If there's a spouse who is being abusive verbally or, um, or, or physically, and we would need to walk through that. Chances are, if there's a, a spouse who is unrepentant and abusive, they're probably not believers. Because I don't know how you act like that if you're a follower of Christ. And so then maybe a 1 Corinthians 7 situation would come into play. But that's certainly more sensitive and significant. And we would have to walk with you in that, even as we get you to safety as elders. Now, obviously, I can't walk through every possible scenario and every possible question of, of why a marriage would end. But I think it's very clear that Jesus, as our king, wants us as his people in his kingdom to elevate our view of marriage and not take it lightly. And to make divorce a last result in very specific circumstances. So... Let's think about how to apply this in our lives. And I want to, again, address every single person in every single state this morning if I can. So firstly, to those who have been divorced, what do you do? If your marriage has ended for a biblical reason, pray about how best you can serve the Lord today. Would you be best served in getting remarried? Or would you be best served remaining single? And devoting whatever time you have left ultimately to the things of God. Because obviously you'll have more time to do things like serve the church, teach and evangelize and maybe go on mission trips. But maybe God hasn't designed you that way and, and you do feel led to be married and you want to honor the Lord in a marriage. Just consider how best you can honor the Lord in that way. If your marriage has ended for another reason that you would say, Jared, I'm not sure is biblical, and you haven't repented, your first step this morning would be to repent, to grieve over it. I know you've grieved, but not just for the embarrassment or the, the failure in your own life, but just because of the, the effect of sin, generally. Have you repented of that? Maybe you're a, maybe you tried to fight for your marriage, but your spouse just left. 
Maybe you need to sit in the grace of God this morning. Let me say this. After repenting, if restoration, we're talking about marriages that have not ended for a biblical reason, or at least you think not. And again, if there's some confusion there, we're happy to walk alongside you and, and navigate that with you as pastors and ministers. But once you've repented, think about restoration. Is restoration possible? And would you seek to, to be married again to that person if it honored the Lord to do so? You may say, Jared, that sounds pretty crazy. But let me just tell you, I know a couple who got divorced and then began felt being convicted of their divorce like seven years later. And the Lord brought them back together again. And they've been married for a, over a decade again. And they use their story now as a testimony to anybody in, involved in a, in a difficult situation in their marriage. And they say, if, if God can heal us and bring us back together, he can do that for anyone. I'm just telling you, God raises the dead, right? He can resurrect a marriage. Don't put it beyond God to do that. It's possible. If your person you're divorced from is not a believer, maybe you could use your relationship with them to help introduce them to Christ. Wouldn't that be a great way to redeem that? If they have remarried or you have remarried, live as you are. This is not calling you to get divorced again because you want to go back and marry. Don't, don't further complicate things. Just commit to live the, to the glory of God in, this, in the place you find yourself in and use your current marriage in a way that's reflective of God's teaching on marriage. If you're single, then think about the opportunity you have to live your life for the glory of God. And the testimony of God's redemptive redemption and grace that you could offer to people and how he sustains you. Now, to the single, would you pray for your married friends? Marriage is hard, it's wonderful, it's great, but the enemy comes after and attacks marriages, and that affects the testimony of our church. Would you pray for the marriages of this church? If you're called to marriage, you need to prepare, right? Take it seriously and consider the weight of what you're entering into. Don't enter into marriage hastily. Do it prayerfully for the glory of God. And encourage your brothers and sisters when they come to you. Don't, when, when someone comes to you, a, a spouse, a husband or a wife, and they're talking about the difficulty of their marriage, don't start saying, hey, listen, just get divorced. Single life is great. Just come join us in the single crowd. No, encourage them biblically. And say, hey, this is a covenant and commitment that you need to make and you need to strive and fight for and I'm going to help you do it. That's, that's what we have community like this to encourage. To the married, fight for your marriage and the testimony of the gospel. If you need help, get help. And don't wait until you think it's too late. By the way, it's not too late. And to all of us, let us rejoice in a bridegroom who will never abandon his bride. Divorce is messy. Because it paints a bad picture, but I want you to see the big picture of the Bible this morning. We have a bridegroom, his name is Christ. And he loves us as his bride deeply. He will never be unfaithful to us. He will never abandon us. And we 
can willingly submit our lives in obedience for his glory because he is good. Husbands, let's strive to be, let's strive to be like him. Wives, let's try to respond like that to him for the glory of God. And in moments where marriages come apart, let's run to our faithful bridegroom who can heal all, all wounds and provide grace to cover anything in our life. Wherever you are, would you bow your head? Spend some time before the Lord asking him to help you know how to respond this morning. The first question I want to ask is, do you know this bridegroom, Jesus? Have you been saved? Have you been united to God through him? Are you experiencing not only intimate relationship here on this earth, are you experiencing an intimate relationship with God that only comes from Christ? The Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you can be saved. You can be saved from the wrath of God and reunited to God, living an eternal and abundant life. That's the most important relationship you will ever have in your life. Other, all other relationships flow from that. Let's get that right first. For the rest of us, if we're in Christ, how are our marriages? Are we fighting for them to be a, a light for the gospel? Maybe some of you need to, hear, need to repent because you've done some things that threatened your marriage. You need to confess that to your, your spouse. And say, I want to do better. I want to take this seriously because I understand it's not just about us, it's about the kingdom. Maybe some of you singles right now need to pray for marriages that you know are in trouble. Maybe you need to speak a word of encouragement for them. And maybe you've not been preparing well for marriage. If you're called to that, and you want to prepare better. And for those who are divorced, whatever the reason, I know there's hurt there. I know there's difficulty. I don't want you to feel shame this morning. Maybe conviction if that's needed, but certainly not shame. But I also want you to feel the grace of God that covers all of our sin. This is not a scarlet letter that you have to wear around your neck for the rest of your life. That does not define you. You are a child of Jesus Christ. Use your testimony now as a way to, to build this value of marriage and the kingdom the way it should be. And trust the Lord with your life. And help us know how we can come alongside you to help you heal and walk forward in greater commitment. And may we all rejoice in the picture of our faithful bridegroom, Jesus, who will never forsake us. Father, we rejoice in the work of Jesus. May we as a people seek to live in all of our relationships, certainly our marriage relationships, in a way that honors him and displays the gospel, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You stand and respond as the Lord leads.